Well, in his book, his very helpful book called Authority, Jonathan Lehman illustrates what he calls our angsty relationship with authority here in America. Our angsty relationship with authority in America. He says of himself, he says, quote, I have been taught not to trust the, the church's authority because the church persecuted Galileo. I've been taught to, uh, trust, to not trust the Bible's authority because science teaches us to leave superstition behind. Or to trust science authority because one generation of scientists will disprove the former. And I've been taught to not trust the king's authority because there's no such thing as a divine right of kings. Or to trust the democratic majority's authority because majorities, majorities can be tyrannical too. Or to trust the authority of courts because they're also playing politics. Or language's authority because some French philosophers observed people weaponize everyday terms. Or the market's authority because capitalism is conjoined with the, is the conjoined twin of racism. Or police's authority because they're racist too. Or the media's authority because it's biased. Or I've, been, I've also been taught to not trust mom and dad's authority because, well, life is more fun when you can sneak out and party. He goes on to say, quote, when, when all is said and done, there aren't any authorities left to topple. Except, of course, the authority of me. He goes on to say, perhaps the easiest place to spot our cultural angst over authority is to go to the movies and notice who the heroes are. As often as not, our movie heroes are the individuals that stand up against authority because the authorities are evil. Luke Skywalker fights against the Empire in the Star Wars trilogy. Neo against the Machines in the Matrix trilogy. Jason Bourne against the U.S. CIA. Katniss Everdeen against the Capitol and President Snow in Hunger Games. Maximus stands up to a corrupt Caesar and Gladiator. William Wallace opposes a corrupt King Edward in Braveheart. And on it goes. And so since authority is seen to be evil, we therefore then view freedom like Elsa. No right, no wrong. No rules for me. I'm free. As I said to my niece at Christmas time, a Swifty who happened to conveniently really like and is interested in the Kansas City Chiefs all of a sudden, <laughs> you have been discipled well, is what I told her. And so, friends, from the Garden of Eden, where Satan tempted Adam and Eve to reject the good authority of God and instead as we learn there in Genesis chapter 3, we can be like God ourselves from that moment when the fall entered into the world until this day when we have been discipled in that same ideology. We find, friends, that we are hardwired to distrust authority and to follow our own desires as God. And so much of this, of course, has led to widespread destruction. As the conclusion of the book of Judges puts it, when there is no king and everyone does what is right in their own eyes, what you get is chaos. And deep down, most of us know that. We don't like it, but we know that. And part of the reason we don't like it is because we not only do want to go our own way for selfish reasons, but also uh, one of the reasons we might want to do so is because 
We want to go our way in order to protect ourselves from the abuse of authority. Many here in this room could testify to how a pastor, a parent, a policeman, a friend, a spouse, many here could testify to how they use their authority for evil in your life. They abused it after you learned to trust them. And even if that didn't happen to you, Personally, most of us are at least well enough versed in history to know that history is littered with authoritative abuses. And so here we have this complicated mix of realities. First, that me as God is the result of the fall. It's not a virtue, but often a vice. It explains so much of the darkness and destruction that is around us. But second, also, to further that, our our modern society can disciple us into further uh, strengthening this God of me towards the distrust of authority. And thirdly, part of that's understandable because authority figures have proven to be abusive. But then also, fourthly, no matter how hard we might try, authority will never go away. From traffic laws to building codes to employers to the laws of gravity, no matter how hard we might try to build a society on being anti-authoritarian, it'll never work. Because to be part of any community is going to demand some kind of authority. And so authority then is complicated. It's dangerous in a thought-following world. And yet authority, when used rightly, is beautiful. Authority, when used rightly, is beautiful. Those of you that grew up in homes of good moms and dads could testify to that, how they use their authority for good, which gives us a most important clue about authority in a fallen world. And that is this, friends. The answer is not the absence of authority, but instead it's replacing bad authority with good authority. That's the answer. King David, a one who had a great deal of authority, said this in 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 3 to 4. He says, The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. In short, friends, when you have just or good authority, is it brings life. Or, for our passage today, it brings peace. So that again frames out our passage for this morning. We've been working again through 1 Thessalonians. These are the next couple verses. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 13. Paul writes to the church. We ask you, brothers... I would include there the translation. If you have the New American Standard, uh, Christian Standard Bible, it has sisters. We ask you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. We ask you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Paul here, friends, is talking about pastors in local churches. And so let me go ahead and state the obvious from the beginning here, friends. This passage stands very much to be self-serving to me, doesn't it? Let's just call attention to that from the very beginning. 
And so this passage stands to be very self-serving. Since I am one of the people that he's talking about that you ought to esteem and think very highly of and follow and the like. But before you dismiss anything that I have to say, I want you to know, friends, that I want the same thing you do. I want peace. I want peace. And I realize some of you might not believe me, and that's fine. That's fine. I only ask that you would come to believe this. Big idea of the sermon of this passage. God, good, God-given authority gives peace. That's what we see. That's what I want you to see. Good, God-given authority gives peace. Peace. Good God-given authority gives peace. That's what the text is teaching us this morning. Good God-given peace gives... Good God-given authority gives peace. And most fundamentally, three points this morning. Here's the first. Most fundamentally, first we need to understand that the church is to be the place of peace. The church is the place of peace. Now remember, guys, this letter is being written to a local church in the midst of all kinds of suffering and persecution for the gospel in the little town, or actually pretty big town, called Thessalonica, second largest city in Greece back then and still today. The letter is written to a new local church amidst suffering for the gospel. You can see that from the beginning of the letter. If you go back in chapter 1, verse 6, you can see that suffering. In chapter 3, you can see the suffering for the gospel. And so here you have all of these very interesting, just very uh, difficult realities going on in the life of this church. First of all, it's a new church. It's a few months old. Second of all, it's a fresh new understanding of this new covenant that they are in. And thirdly, they're surrounded in that new covenant because of their belief in it. They're surrounded by all kinds of difficulty. And so you can see why Paul has been emphasizing time and again throughout this letter this need to love one another. Because church unity with all of these variables, friends, is not just hard. It's impossible apart from God. And so after considering the return of Christ in chapter 4, at the beginning of chapter 5, Paul then moves in here to the leadership of the church. Because he knows that if they are going to experience the full benefits of the gospel... They're going to not only need leaders, they're going to need leaders that are not only going to need to be respected, but loved. More on that in a bit. But for now, it's important to see the guiding thought for this council for the leaders of the church. The guiding thought for this council in this church is right there in verse 13. Be at peace among yourself. That's the command. That's the goal. Be at peace. That's the sort of guiding thought to this all these calls to leadership. Be at peace among yourselves. And peace, guys, means not only the absence of evil, peace means the presence of good, presence of righteousness. Absence of evil, presence of righteousness. And that's the goal. Be at peace. And that peace, that gospel peace, be at peace among yourselves. Slide down to where Paul is going to land his argument here. All right? He's just finished talking about the return of Christ. That's the end of chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 5. And then you'll notice what he then moves in is from chapter 12 to verse 20, sorry, chapter 5, verse 12, down to verse 22. You're going to see it's all this practical counsel. And then he finishes up his argument with this very lofty request in verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you. That's a plural you, you all. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you all completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he gives some assurance. Verse 24, he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. 
All right, so the flow of the letter to the church goes like this. From chapter 4, Christ is returning, right? We will be resurrected, bodily resurrection, just as Jesus had a bodily resurrection. He will return bodily. Those that are in Christ, they will be with him. We will always be with him. He will then judge the living and the dead. Those apart from Christ will come to destruction, uh, and we will have, when he comes back, this is what he just finished talking about, we will have then complete salvation. We will have that complete peace world peace, then he moves into practical counsel, followed by a prayer for the God of peace to sanctify, to cleanse, to make us increasingly holy as we wait for Christ's return. And he is going to surely do it. That's the sort of framework, how it goes. And so church family, Christ came for peace. He purchased it at the cross. And he will bring the full benefits of that peace upon his return. And so until he comes, our job as a church is to live in that peace until he comes. That's it. He has purchased it in the past. He will bring it in all of its consummation in the future. Our job in between as we wait for that is to live in that peace that we have and will have in its full. Which is why the church is to be the place of peace. The local church is the steward of the gospel. The church is uniquely able to steward the gospel. We're to be that place of peace, illustrating his rule and authority. And let me just skip a rock across the New Testament to help you see that, how Christ comes for peace and then builds these communities for peace and then will consummate it at his return. Let me just skip a rock across uh, the New Testament. Take a look at Luke chapter 1, verse 79. There is Zechariah prophesying that Christ will come. To, quote, give light to those. Why did Jesus come? To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. If you're not a Christian and you're wondering, why did Jesus come? Well, there you go. Darkness representing ignorance or absence of knowledge of the truth about God. He comes to bring light to it and to guide our feet into the way of peace. And, of course, to accomplish it on the cross. Which leads us to the next passage, Luke chapter 2, verse 14. We thought about this at Christmas, right? The angels sang at the birth of Christ, and notice that it designates who the peace is for. The angels sang, right? The angels sing, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Those that know the peace of Christ, which therefore Jesus grows up, becomes a man. John 14, verse 27, Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, but not as the world gives do I give to you. John 16, 33, Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so Christ comes into the world. He's fully God and fully man. And there, there's all of this darkness. He teaches the truth. He teaches light. And then he goes as the Redeemer. And therefore, uniquely, since he had no sin in and of himself, as the God-man, he's able to reconcile man to God. He, the perfect one, the Redeemer, offers his life on the cross for sinners. Because we cannot pay, ultimately. We cannot work our way to God. Christ worked his way to us through the person and work of Christ, offering his blood as a sacrifice for sinners that would believe that we might be holy, that we might have peace with God again. And we know that that sacrifice was accepted because of the resurrection. And so therefore, this gospel of peace 
We read about it in so many places in the New Testament, but Colossians chapter 1, verse 20 sums it up in reference of Christ. It says through him, through Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. How? By the blood of his cross. And so therefore, Jesus, having accomplished that peace between God and man, for all that believe, Jesus then on the other side of that in the resurrection, he then commissions his disciples. And he says to them, uh, John 20, verse 21, Jesus said to them, peace be with you. This is his commissioning. As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. So there's this great shepherd of the sheep, the true pastor, right? The one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, having made peace for sinners who believe with God, he then sends his Holy Spirit to rest upon the disciples so that they might experience that peace. And then those disciples, having been commissioned by Christ, he he accomplishes peacefulness on the cross. He then raises and then applies that peace to them by commissioning them. The Spirit falls upon them. And those apostles then go spread the gospel. You read about this in the book of Acts. They're spreading the gospel. They're telling people to repent and believe upon Jesus, that they might be peaceful between God and man. They might have peace between God and man. And as people respond to that message, as people repent and believe upon Christ, they then, we find in Acts chapter 2, what happens? They start forming churches where they're talking about that peace. Communities of peace. Communities of light. Churches are assemblies where the all-encompassing authority of Christ is experienced. That's what churches are. Which is why it's so common, by the way, if you ever wondered, those of you that read the Bible, why does the New Testament epistles always start the way that they do? You'll notice, we would expect them, having done this little biblical theology of peace, we would expect them to be talking about peace. And of course they do. That's how they start. Think about Romans chapter 1, verse 7 as an example. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, that means holy, Grace to you and what? Peace from God our Father and the Lord, he's the authority, Lord Jesus Christ. So friends, these little churches were previews of the return of Christ. That's why sometimes the church is called mankind out in front of time. Right? The return of Christ. We reflecting, trying to reflect his rule and authority. Binding and loosing here on earth as we understand it to be in heaven. And so we're trying to teach, even in this moment, I'm trying to teach you, right, into the rule of Christ, the peaceful reign of Christ. And the more that we live in that, the more that we experience the peace of Christ, which we'll have in its consummation at the return of Christ, which again is what Paul's talking about in 1 Thessalonians 5. Paul kind of sums this up in Galatians 16 with this. And as for all who walk by this rule, this rule of peace, this rule of the gospel, this rule of the word of Christ, as for all who walk by this rule... Peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel, that is the people of God. So Christ is our peace. He used his authority not to sort of bully people, but instead to atone for the sins of those that would believe. Accomplishing peace between God and man. He gives his spirit to apply our peace with God, to empower us to live out that peace together in the life of the church. And so Christ is the King of Kings, He's the Prince of Peace, and here is the one place in the life of the church. Here is the one place that people should be able to go to in order to enter into His kingdom, to sort of see it and understand it. Which is why Paul writes, after considering heaven's coming, this is why he writes, to be at peace among yourselves, there in the life of the church. I don't know if you've ever been to Disney World, but I've gone to Epcot. 
And when you go to Epcot, there's this little tram that takes you up into this strange crystal wall of sorts. And I remember going through there when I was a young boy and walking through there. And they had all these pictures, these images of the future. You've been there, you know what I'm talking about. These little images of what life is going to be like in the future. Well, friend, the church is the Epcot ball, right? We're supposed to be the kind of rule of Christ, the images of what life is going to be at the return of Christ, living under the good authority of Christ, the peace that he accomplished and will bring at his return. Light in a country of darkness. The light, that's the church, the place of peace. Which then leads us to Paul's call towards his representative authorities in the church. Second point here, pastors then are counselors of peace. Church is the place of peace. If that's true, that then leads to the next point, right? Pastors then are counselors of peace. That's exactly, again, what Paul talks about in verse 13. Take a look at verse 13 of chapter 5. Paul says, esteem them, those spiritual leaders, those pastors, esteem them very highly in love. Why? Because of their work. Well, what's their work? Well, as he, he lists it out there, they're admonishing, they're giving instruction. In what? Well, towards Christ the King and his gospel of peace. Right? So, and their authority, the pastor's authority, is only insofar as they are instructing in the Lord. Right? You see that there in the passage. Notice that qualifier, in the Lord. In the Lord. Right? This is why it is not my job to give you counsel and whether or not you should... You know, uh, I don't know, uh, do something like neurosurgery, like what Joseph does, right? It's not my job. It's not in the Lord. I don't know if you should do that or not, whatever. In keeping with the rule of Christ, they are over you in the Lord. And notice that word are, right? Do you see that word are? They are over you. So you may not believe it. You may not want to do it. But the reality is it's sort of like the laws of gravity. It just is. And by the way, that's, that can be clearly laid out in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, when you see that, yes, in one sense, Restoration Church, yes, for sure, uh, you have voted me in to be your pastor, and you continue to maintain that agreement. However, at the same time, we read in Acts chapter 20, verse 8, that the Holy Spirit made me an overseer. So God did it. They are over you. And our work, then, is to admonish. To admonish means to teach That's the work, to teach and to pray. By our life and doctrine, pastors are over us, and notice the text, they are among us to counsel us to live inside of the peaceful lordship of Christ. There's the work. To take Christ's rule and authority and help us to know how to live inside of it in advance of its coming in full so that we can experience that peace. That's the work. That's my job description as a pastor. It's to try to, I'm over us insofar as I'm in the Lord and teaching you to walk in the Lord in the Lordship of Christ. To take Christ's rule and authority, his, what he has accomplished, what he will accomplish at his return, and just teach it to you, counsel you in it, pray you towards it and the like. That's the work of the pastor. That's our job. So pastors, I speak to you. Joey, Chris, Chris, Nick, uh, Nick, there's Nick, Chris Holt. That's our job. Brothers, that's our job. Our job is to help these precious people know the true authority of Christ and to live inside of the peaceful rule of that Christ. That's our job. How to live in light of the coming heaven. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers. 
And that is most fundamentally ought to be about pastors. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall know the kingdom of God. So to help the church live at peace among themselves as they instruct the church in word and deed how to do that. So think of the elders, sort of think of the elders of the church, the pastors of the church. By the way, those are synonymous terms. The New Testament uses those words synonymously. Uh, Think of the elders of the church sort of like those founding fathers that came back from the peace treaty and the constitutional convention, all right? George Washington and the boys. Like sort of think of the elders sort of like that. Instead of coming back from Philadelphia, we've come back from Jerusalem, okay? We've come back knowing Christ has accomplished peace and there is this new covenant. There is this new rule and we're going to help you live inside of that, okay? That's our work, right? According to Matthew chapter 16, every Christian has been given keys, to, which means there in the Matthew 16 to render judgments, right? And so we are over you, but there's also a sense in which we are under you. We believe, I'll get into this in a little bit, uh, our job is not to, we don't have final authority, the congregation does. And so it's our job as we've come back from the constitutional convention in Jerusalem that Jesus has accomplished, it's our job to help you understand how to use those keys, those new keys that have been given to you, to understand how do we render judgment, how do we make decisions, what's true, what's not true, how do we make judgments in this new rule of the new covenant and the gospel of peace, how do we do that? And the pastor's there, we've come back from the convention, and we're trying to help you learn how to do that as a country, as it were, as a pastorate, as a church, to exercise those keys. And just as the church is to esteem the elders very highly in love because of their work, so the elders themselves, we, I, do that work in love. As you esteem us in love, we do that work in love. Love because we love our king. We love our king. We've come back from Jerusalem and we are here so happy, right, in the joy of Christ to so instruct you. And this all-encompassing rule of Christ, this peace of Christ, it is our love to serve Him. And because He has purchased your salvation, we are. Look at the passage and notice that He calls us brothers and sisters. You see that? We're family. We're family. There's a sense in which because the divine things are so much thicker than the realities. Right? The church family is so the gospel, we might say, is thicker than blood. And so it's our Job. So not just, we do so in love for Christ. And then we love you because you're our family. Trying to instruct you in the peace of Christ. And so it's no trouble to do this work. No trouble to work among you. It's no trouble to teach you, to pray for you, to warn you against wolves in sheep clothing. To warn you against false doctrines and schemes of the devil. It's no trouble to equip you to be the children of the light as we learn to walk in the light. In love, we do this because we love him and we do this because we love you, beloved. That's why we use that word beloved. I don't know if you ever caught that. Restoration Church, the elders of this church, and let me also add the deacons of this church because they too are are an authoritative body of this church, albeit under the elders. We do what we do, not because we have to, but because we want to. Because we want to. We want you to be instructed into the ways of Christ and His rule and His gospel. We love the gospel. We love the God of the gospel. And we love you because you're family. And we want you to know that peace. And we want to be a community of light and peace. This is our work. To counsel you in the peace of Christ our King. Who will come soon. Therefore, thirdly and finally. 
Since the church is the place of peace and the pastors then are the counselors of the peace, peaceful rule of Christ and are over you. Thirdly, therefore, church, love and respect your leaders. Love and respect your leaders. You see that there so clear. Look again at verse 12. We ask you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who labor among you. Uh, the original language has this notion of sort of acknowledging, sort of see their position. To respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And so love and respect your leaders, church family, not just because we are divinely over you as the Bible teaches, yes, but more so because you love the great shepherd of the sheep. Love and respect the pastors because you love the great pastor, your Lord and Savior. And he has appointed these leaders as under shepherds of his good rule and authority so that you might increasingly learn how to live inside the peace of the one you love. Elders and deacons in the church should not be followed insofar as their lives and doctrine are not in the Lord. Right? That's so important. Insofar as you see pastors, deacons, counseling you towards something that is not in the Lord, that is not expressly stated by the Lord, you ought not follow that. You ought not respect that. You ought not esteem that highly in any sense. But wherever it is reasonably, those elders are reasonably inside the counsel of Christ, beloved, respect and esteem their work of building up communities of heaven while still here on the earth. Respect and esteem that very highly in love. Don't reflect the fallen culture's disdain for authority. Learn to esteem very highly in love the work that they, that we do, not because of who we are, but because of what we're trying to do. We are laboring to help you know and enjoy Christ in advance of his return, to increasingly experience that peace. And beloved, remember that especially when we preach or teach or pray for something you might not immediately like. You've got to remember that. Right? It's easy to say, you know, I love my pastor, that Nathan, he's a hoot, you know, whatever. He'll tell me what's true until that time I say something that you don't like. Those are the moments, especially these verses, really have to speak in. You find out if you really do respect them and esteem them in love when they call you or they call us as a church to something we may not like. So, for instance, from the biblically clear things that are often disliked in our culture, things like the exclusivity of the gospel, the reality of heaven and hell, uh, the sinfulness of sexual immorality and greed, the office of pastors as reserved for men, these kinds of things. To other biblical ideas relating to membership and discipline, which are biblical, baptism in the Lord's Supper, but even and especially to those things that are in the category of what we might call wisdom, right? where we are taking principles of Scripture and applying them to the places where we do not have a thus says the Lord. Right? We, you'll notice, by the way, in our life together, we have a lot of those, don't we? We're trying to figure out what's the best way to lead in light of this. Right? COVID was a blast, right? <laughs> oh, right? Trying to apply wisdom where there's no thus says the Lord. Per se. So, for instance, things like, in the category of wisdom, things like our affiliation with various churches or networks they're attached to, to the way that we steward our money, to the manner with which we relate to politics and other aspects of the world. Friends, get ready, 2024 America, right? Satan's going to use these things in the upcoming election. They're going to try to divide the church. Here it comes. You heard Steve pray for it. 
down to the counseling room when we are having to call you to love and forgiveness that matches the scandal of the gospel. That doesn't mean, beloved, that you have to agree with everything that we say. That's not the point. It's not the point. More so than it is even, and especially amidst the disagreement, you still labor to respect and to esteem us because you believe we're trying to help you walk in the counsel of Christ, the peacefulness and the heavenly rule of Christ. We are doing all of these things among you, admonishing you, teaching you, because we are appointed counselors of Christ's rule and authority. We are not authorities in and of ourselves. We are authorities in the Lord, endeavoring to lead you at peace with God and peace with one another, knowing that he's returning soon. You have to trust, beloved, that that's our motive. You've got to trust us in that. We do not do what we do as pastors for earthly glory. Listen, we have Nathan Knight has all the glory that he will ever need in Christ. I don't need glory anywhere else. So we're not doing it to get earthly glory. We don't do what we do as pastors or deacons because we are on a power trip. This is so important. Remember that as a Baptist church, we have taught you from the Bible that God has given you a final authority. We taught you that. That's what we teach and practice is that you have final authority. Again, Matthew 16, the keys of the kingdom are given to everyone that have made the good confession. You have the job, church family, of binding and loosing, rendering judgments on earth as it is in heaven, as a collective deliberative body. And so on matters of membership and leadership and budget, we lead you. Your pastors have taught you to understand the rule of Christ. And you, we, the members, because remember, I'm first a member of this church before I'm a pastor. For those of you who are the rare, which I think was only David Attaway that's left here when he was there that day. If you remember, we formed the church first. We led the church towards that end. We formed the church first, and then the church then voted Joey and I in because you have the final authority first. We've led you to make decisions that accord with heaven as best we can tell. So if we were on a power trip, guys, we would most certainly not have led you to do that. We would have kept that power to ourselves. But we are held bound in our consciences to Scripture, and so we lead you towards that end. And lastly, we don't give what counsel we give because we are after our own comfort. My goodness, this is not true. Do you know how much easier my life would be? If I didn't have our statement of faith and our church covenant and my conscience wasn't held bound in it, my life would be way easier. If we didn't think the Bible taught certain things about membership and discipline and about various ethical things and all this kind of stuff, my life would be way easier if I didn't have those convictions. You might disagree with maybe some of those convictions, but the point is, right, don't think that we're trying to lead you towards these things because I get comfort out of it. It's not why. It would be way comforter more comfortable for me to not lead in so many of those things. We do what we do because we love Jesus and we love you and we believe his word is a good authority for peace. Our elders believe that by admonishing, by teaching the way that we do, we are counseling you, counseling us into the good rule and authority of Christ that displays peace and delivers peace to each other. And the more, guys, that we see it that way, the more you and I can believe that we're not, in particular, as power. We're not against you, but we're for you. We're for you. Do you want to know the number one reason why I have gotten hurt as a pastor over the years? We get into this line of work. We as pastors know when you get into this line of work, sheep bite. So that's not a surprise. We know that. We walk into this work. Sometimes we forget that. 
You know, I have to, I feel like I have to remind myself and there's plenty of times I'm on the, on the phone with pastors and I say, brother, we, we signed up for this. I know. But do you know the number one reason why? It's not if people say like, Nathan, your preaching stinks. That doesn't bother me, honestly, because I probably know it stinks more than you do, right? Uh, if people say, you know, what if there's this thing or that thing about the church I don't really like, those things don't tend to bother me as much. The thing that bothers me more than anything, the thing that hurts me more than anything, is especially with people that you've walked with for years and tried to counsel in the truth of Christ, the peace of Christ. And when at some point we offer some counsel, which may or may not be right, and they assume the worst about you, about me. They assume the worst about me, that I mean to sort of, they come to conclusions that think I mean to harm you. And that's hard for me to take. That's not what I'm endeavoring to do. I, I, I may provide counsel that's not right, but it's not my desire to lead you to bad places. And it's hurtful to know that people might come to that conclusion, especially after we've known them and tried to love them over the course of years. We do what we do because we love Jesus and we love you with Jesus' rule. And it's our prayer that the more that we do that, the more that you and I will grow in our love for Christ and experience the peace that passes all understanding, the more that we will begin to experience a little bit more of heaven while we're still on earth, heaven that is coming. And so as you grow in your love for Christ, we hope that you'll grow in love for us as we try to lead you more towards him. And the more that that happens, right, the more that you trust us, the more peace we will then have in Christ and the more peace we have with one another, the more peace we have with those that are over us here in the Lord, the more we will know the joy that will be ours fully and finally in heaven with Christ. The more we do that, the more that we love Jesus and his good authority, the more that you trust us that we're doing the best we can, not that we're perfect and always give the right counsel, but insofar as you trust that we're trying to do that for the peacefulness, and right, we have members meetings and the like where we can come and you guys can push back on that and say it's wrong or whatever the case may be, but the more we learn to love and trust Jesus, the more that we love and trust his rule and learn to love and trust each other, the more that we will experience the peace of Christ, and then as we see in Acts, what happens? The world around us looks at our life together and says, you know, I don't necessarily believe all that they believe, but they do have peace. That community seems to have peace in a world so full of darkness and confusion and the like. And honestly, beloved, I can say as your pastor, that is what I have experienced for almost 15 years. A a peaceful rule, a peaceful council, a peaceful uh, pastorate, as it were. Peace in so far as we love Jesus and give ourselves to him. And so I want to thank you for the ways, beloved, that you have trusted us as we have imperfectly tried to lead. And pray. Listen, here's a call. Right? The call is, is, is right there. Be at peace with one another. That's the call. There's the answer. There's the imperative. There's the action to esteem them to, and highly in love, to respect them. There's the call. But listen, pray for us. Look down at verse 17. He's going to go here. We'll get here in a couple weeks. He goes and talks about this, rejoice always, pray without ceasing. Pray for us as pastors. Pray for us, right, that we would be the kinds of men that collectively are coming under the good rule and authority of Christ and try as best we can to apply it. And then pray for yourselves. Pray for us that you would do as Paul says, that we would live at peace with one another, that you would do so by respecting and esteeming us because of the work we're trying to do. Pray for that. Work for that in your public and especially in your private conversations. Again, the devil schemes to divide the church, and his favorite target is the church, and especially 
leaders in the church. If he can get sort of churches to be divide, divisive between leadership and membership, right? He then shows that the gospel doesn't seem to be very peaceful. And of course, that's happened countless times because of a lot of sinful pastors and sinful people. Pray that we would be the kinds of people and the kinds of church that would maintain that peace. And so, guys, as we live in a place and a time that largely looks down on authority in favor of personal authority, especially authority in the church, right? This world's discipling us towards personal authority. Guys, I understand the pull. And and I want you to remember, by the way, I'm a man under authority too, right? Don't forget that. Both in the sense that I'm under the rule and authority of Christ. Secondly, I am under as a... Again, as a Baptist church, I'm actually under, I'm over you in one sense, but in another sense, I'm under you, right? And then thirdly, I'm also under the counsel of my brothers on that elder board, right? There has been quite a number of times, maybe not a lot, but a few times where I've wanted to do X and my brothers said no. So I'm a man under authority too. Don't forget that. So we live in a place and a time that largely looks down on authority in favor of personal authority, especially in the church. I get the pull, right? In those moments when I lost votes, I didn't like it. I had to submit to it. I understand it, brothers and sisters. We've got to have to fight to believe the words of Christ here. We have to believe that the answer to bad authority is not no authority, but it's good authority. And that authority, that good authority is Christ. It's first him. All authority, he said, is mine in heaven and on earth. All authority is his. And how did he use his authority? To be humble, to offer his life for sinners, to give his life up, right? To, Philippians 2 talks about the fact that he didn't hold on to his place uh, there as God, but instead gave himself up to become a man. That's how he used his authority. He's a good authority. He's a good king. That's the place. We don't despise authority. We love authority. We love the right authority, and Christ is that authority. And since he's placed pastors over us to guide us into that peace, a humble plea, therefore then, beloved, follow your pastors and your deacons insofar as they are in that Lord, that authority. And if ever we try to lead you away from Christ the King, do not follow us. Fire me. I'm serious. And you have the ability in this church, according to its policy, you can do that. In other churches, you can't. But this one, you can. And we've led you in that. But insofar as we do, follow us as we follow the Lord. And I'm sorry for the ways that some of you have experienced pastoral abuse. I'm sorry. Truly, I'm sorry. It grieves me. I'm asking for another chance. These elders are asking you for another chance. Paul, there, look at verse 17. Sorry, verse 12. Paul is asking you for another chance. I can promise you that I, in particular, will not be perfect. If you've ever done a membership interview with me, you know this. If you've ever done a membership with interview, you'll know the last thing I typically say is, I look at you across the table and I say, I am going to fail you. I know that. How do I know that? Well, first, because I know I'm a sinner. But secondly, I failed my wife, the person I love more than anybody else. I failed my kids. I failed people, my family that I love dearly. And I've failed you in, in, in times, in counsel. Thankfully, not in ways that are disqualifying, but I've failed you. And so I always say in membership discussions, I'm going to fail you. I don't want to. It's not my desire. I'm going to do the best I can to not, but I'm probably going to fail you. So give us a chance as we try. By the way, I understand that's part of the reason that makes it hard to follow pastors, right? Because you know we do fail you. By the way, that's the beauty of a plurality of elders. Because you don't have just one guy. you got now six of us that are kind of checking each other. 
And then you've got a congregation that's able to hold us accountable. It's the beauty of the rule of Christ as we believe it is laid out in Scripture. And so I'm asking for another chance that you would trust me, trust us, and I would trust you as we give ourselves to Jesus and his good rule and authority. And I believe, guys, just think, if we do that more and more over the next 5, 10, 20 years, what might happen? What might we do? What could we do? Think about those kids' lives. Kids, you're sitting in the room. By the way, this passage is mainly about pastors, but kids, your parents are good authorities. So let me sneak that in there. Pastors, appreciate that later. Think about those kids and what kind of church, kind of community they might have if we give ourselves to this. We need it because this world is so full of darkness and divisiveness. And so we may give ourselves to the good authority of Christ as the pastors lead us in that and as the congregation esteems them for that work as we learn to be at peace among ourselves. And as we do that, we will taste more of heaven and the world around us might get a little bit more of that heaven too. And so let's do it for the glory of Christ and the good of one another.